Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate, And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends or your family and with people you know or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. I'm joined on the show today by an old friend of mine, Brian Semcooley, who is a global innovation and marketing business professional. Brian's recognized for his ability and leadership in driving business value and brand growth using his unique talent in business and marketing strategies. His passion for innovation, development, and commercialization are supported by his strengths in creative thinking, strategic planning, and building winning teams. Now, Brian's bio spans over so many years and so many stories, but rather than me getting any further into it, let's just get started and have Brian share his stories and the lessons he's learned along his journey of success. Brian Semcooley, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast, an old friend. We finally get to connect. We're actually going to have more conversation and get caught up right here, right now. So, Brian, how are you? I'm great, Patrick. It's good to see you. It's been a while, but uh, I'm really glad we were able to get together for this conversation it, today. It took a long time. We're both, uh, you're my, well, I guess we're both pretty busy because it did take a, take a while to get this connected, but uh, welcome to the show anyways. No, thank you. I appreciate the invitation and uh, look forward to it and have some fun with you. Now, Brian, let's, uh, for the audience and listeners, why don't we talk about right now is let's get started with what are you doing today? Because you've got a long history in the world of you know business and branding and corporations and all sorts of stuff, and we're going to dig into that. But tell me, what are you doing today? So today, I, uh, I would consider myself a, a full-time business consultant and business advisor. I uh, have my own consultancy called Brandvation, but I'm also involved with a couple uh, important uh, innovation 
consulting networks. One is Global Minds Network based out of Paris, and another one is the Third Angle based out of Chicago. So we're looking at helping companies uh, perform better in their day-to-day businesses and also help bring greater discipline and effectiveness around their innovation programs. Okay, so that's interesting. Now, let's talk about how you got here a little bit, uh, or do you want to talk about that those projects you got going on right now? Yeah, some of the projects that I'm working on right now are on uh, developing new beverages. I also happen to uh, to be working on a lot of PPE projects, given some of the history that I had with Kimberly Clark. Uh, given the current situation we've got with COVID and some of the health issues as we all have been experiencing around the world, there's been a lot of interest in understanding uh, personal protective equipment, uh, how we can better source it, what is required in certain environments, uh, hand sanitizer supplies, all the way down to you know improved wipes for for hard surfaces and for skin to help uh, people stay healthier in their home and sort of pseudo work environments whether those now be at home or in other workplace environments where people still actually have to show up and, and provide essential services well it's interesting i guess covid has opened up some opportunities for a lot of businesses and uh you know i never would have thought about kimberly clark but given what they do uh, and given what's required in the world of COVID, I uh, suspect that they've gotten uh, at least a little busier or expanded some product lines by the sounds of it. Absolutely. They uh, they have definitely had to make some adjustments to the, their supply chain and operations and really focus on some of the key SKUs and, and key products that have been in, in demand, whether it's been uh, an increase in demand or an increase in pantry loading and, and stocking <laughs> up on materials and making sure that you know people are not going to worry about being uh, out of stock on an important essentials. Uh, so that has definitely played a role in, in how they've been managing their business over the last little while, no doubt. So tell me a little bit, Brian, in terms of when you talk about consulting and what are you what are you kind of advising on or what are you consulting on? What kind of insights are you providing or guidance? So I would say most of it is around brand marketing and innovation. I would consider myself a career marketeer, having come out of school with a background in marketing and been able to apply that through throughout my career as a, as a marketeer, primarily with consumer goods and, and fast-moving consumer goods, uh, and then really have been able to transition to uh, roles within innovation and bring new product development to to the world, look at improved processes as a form of innovation, communication strategies, et cetera. And I guess one of the key things that I would subscribe to is that really innovation is in um, entrusted to be in service to a brand. Mm. So innovation for innovation's sake is not necessarily something that may be commercially viable, uh, but you need to drive innovation from the brand and what the brand promises and really make sure that you're bringing to market new and enhanced uh, products and services from that brand to, uh, to the consumer, to the customer. Okay. So that all sounds really cool. And like, it's, it's, I don't know, my, my impression of it is, is, is it, takes a lot of knowledge and a lot of background. But let's go back, and I want to go back a little bit because this is not obviously where you started. I mean, you've spent a lot of years in the corporate world and you've uh, spent a lot of time traveling the world or even living around the world. So why don't we go back a little bit because you started as a relatively young man in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and you expanded from there. So just take me on a little bit of a journey of where you were because uh, you became, uh, was it, I think it was Molson's or Labatt's? I don't remember now. 
It was uh, Labatt Brewing Company. That yeah. is correct. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. But well, now you and, weren't just uh, drinking the beer. Now you weren't just drinking the beer. Now you went to work no. for them as a young man. So That's tell me right. a little bit about That's that right. because it's an interesting journey. It really is. Yes. No, uh, happy to do so. So uh, I did go to the University of Calgary and after graduating from school in Calgary, I had the opportunity to join Labatt uh, Brewing Company up in Edmonton as a, as a market analyst, actually. And I have always told people that that was one of the most gratifying, I think, roles that I could have ever started in and embarked my career on because it allowed me to really understand the numbers of the business from an operations perspective, a sales perspective, and in some ways on the finance side. So really getting to understand the, the ins and outs of the brewing business over those first two years were, were really integral, I think, to, to my foundation which uh, then allowed me to take a move to Regina for a couple of years where I was able to be a sales rep and, and really be face-to-face with our customers and consumers and really understand, you know, the moments in which they consumed our products, but also the opportunities that we had to make those experiences better, whether it was in an environment, whether that be in a bar or a restaurant or potentially at a special event like golf tournaments or rodeos or concerts, so whatever the case may be. So I think that that really gave me a really good foundation, understanding the sales side of the business to actually be a better marketer down the road because you know traditionally there's this uh, yin and yang or, or flex between marketing organizations and sales organizations in many companies and I think uh, having had the opportunity to actually work on both sides has really helped me frankly become a better marketer down the road so I really appreciate that sales experience. I had the opportunity to come back to Edmonton into marketing roles and spent a few years doing some junior uh, brand roles before having the opportunity to, to move on to Toronto. And I remember that being a, you know, a, a big move and one of those moves from a personal and professional perspective that was uh, a good reward because uh, it panned out for us. So it wasn't something I initially wanted to, to necessarily do was to move to Eastern Canada, but uh, it was definitely the right move at that point in time and was afforded the opportunity to have some significant brand marketing roles uh, while I was in Toronto. So let's go, give me a little bit of insight, Brian. I mean, you would have been a young man, would you have been mid-20s, later 20s when you kind of stepped in and, and then let's say, how old were you when you moved to Regina, for example? Oh, I moved to Regina when I was 24, actually. So I was only two years into my career. Yeah. Uh, I was 24, taking that first move to Regina, moved to a city where you don't necessarily know people and you got to mm-hmm. sort of establish yourself. Fortunately, uh, I had worked with some of the people in the two years that I was in Edmonton. So I was at least familiar with the sales manager I was going to work for and a couple of the other sales reps in the area, uh, which allowed me for at least some grounding to to get to, to know people in Regina. Uh, but I also had the opportunity to take uh, what would become my fiance with me at that point in time from Edmonton and you know Kathy joined me in Regina and we sort of embarked on on our collective journey there as well but uh, yeah relatively young at 24 I was back to uh, Edmonton at 26 and uh, we were off to Regina when I was 29 or sorry to Toronto when I was 29 so uh, we had made three moves before I got to my 30s and uh, really had the opportunity to take on larger challenges and bigger tasks within the organization and thankfully really had a good spouse who was very supportive of those moves. So let's go back and because this is so interesting, you know, within the context of the podcast, it's seemingly ordinary that achieve extraordinary and uh, you without question have done that. And I'm interested, Brian, in, you know, you're back there, you're 25, 24 years old, and you get this opportunity to, you know, really to work for a 
a giant in the industry. And especially when you're looking and thinking about who you are, what's going on in Western Canada at that time, specifically Alberta. Yes. What's your mindset at that time? Were you like this young guy going, this is cool. I'm going to climb the corporate ladder. I'm going to, you like, what's, what's, what are you thinking back then? Do you have any recall of just how were you were wired? Because I mean, that's, you were achieving a lot. You were obviously working your ass off. You were probably, you know, showing up pretty bright as well, of course, but What's kind of what was your kind of mindset around it at that time that would take you that far that fast? Uh, so that's, I really appreciate the question. Great question. And if I could probably even go back a little bit, in all honesty, mm-hmm. Patrick, I remember as a you know child growing up, sort of in my teens, frankly dreaming to actually how how could I become a millionaire? And I mm. don't say that you know tritely because I remember thinking and about that when I was 14, 15 years old, and I remember playing with accounting paper and sketch pads and stuff <laughs> like that, thinking about how do I get to a million bucks by the time I'm sixty five. So that was sort of a, a dream of mine or an, and a goal that I had put forward. And I think to answer your question from that period of time, it, it really was sort of having that dream that I wanted to become that. What would be the pathway to get there? Wasn't sure yet, but having that dream was uh, was a starting point. And then as I embarked on my career with Labatt, setting goals and milestones in place to sort of get to that ultimate end point um, was something that I consistently did. And I would say in my mid twenties, I remember, you know, looking at the people I was working with in the office. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, you know, I'd love to be able to become a director one day, you know, you sort of start as an analyst <laughs> and sure. then become a sales rep and then a junior manager. And then man, and it's like, wow, if I could ever become a director, that would be great one day. And, you know, as it was, I became a director, uh, you know, 33 or 34 or something like that. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, having, I, having a plan in those gu- milestones and guideposts, I think really help. Well, you know, and I, and I, I watched your career. Mostly I heard about your career from a distance, of course, Kathy and Stephanie having conversations as, uh, as you progressed and you guys moved around the world. And that's why I was really excited to get you on the show, but let me go back. Even when you're 14, 15 years old, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, I always, the question I often come to is nature or nurture, you know, so your parents, what were, what was their role in your inspiration or uh, supporting you to do that? Like, where did you get that from? Where did you get that mindset or that drive nature, nurture? How was it for you? Sure. I would say a little bit of both. Definitely from my mom more the uh, the nurturing side, you know, making sure that we were well fed and looked after, etc. Uh, and my father was an educator, but also very, uh, very enthusiastic and involved with the sporting community in, in Calgary and in Alberta. And so no doubt his uh, influence around the importance of education and, and, you know, doing your best and trying to learn everything you need to learn in whatever field or endeavor that you want to end up pursuing was always a um, key encouragement of his but i will say his encouragement around uh, sports and athletics was something that uh, carried me on quite a bit as well and i always wanted to pursue and sort of be my best in any athletic endeavor as well and i think that spirit of pushing yourself being competitive to the point of wanting to be challenged by people that were better than you so that you had the opportunity to know what that would be and and therefore need to improve to to supersede what others potentially had done. I think sort of that spirit of competition, competitiveness, desire to sort of perform and do the best you could was really good. And I, I remember one example, I would have been in middle school and uh, running an 800 meter race and I was probably five yards behind the leader with about 110 yards to go and getting 
uh, some vocal encouragement from my father who was <laughs> ensuring that I had more in me than I thought I had. And as it was, ended up, you know, passing the guy and, and winning that race in the last 100 yards by about five or eight yards. So, yeah, it was good to sort of have him at a lot of those events for me and uh, and encourage me to, to perform as best as he knew I could. So did you find when you got into Labatt's, I mean, that's a corporate world. Did you find that you were competing? Did you, were, is that kind of how you went into this going, you know, I want to climb that ladder to your point, you wanted to be a director. And that was just something that drove you throughout your career. Do you think, Brian, was that kind of voice in the back of your head going, I can do better, I can be better, I can achieve more? I, I would say initially not. I was uh, I had the opportunity to work with Labatt actually for a couple summers while I was going to university, and uh, then had the opportunity to sort of apply and and get a, a full time job coming out of school. And and frankly, for me up front, it was much more about learning the business in greater detail than I had with the experience I had over those summers, understanding the ins and outs of, of marketing in practice as opposed to just sort of learning it in, in class and in school. And so for me, it was much more around uh, getting a foundation and, and learning and understanding and then doing the best you could with the tools that you had and, and were provided to you. And then, frankly, I think I had a lot of very good leaders uh, and mentors in front of me who potentially mm-hmm. saw the potential that I had and being able to do more than than what they saw and potentially other new employees and having the opportunity to be selected or given projects or other experiences where you could uh, explicitly sort of expose those talents in ways that you maybe otherwise wouldn't have in your day-to-day job, I think was a great opportunity for me to understand the opportunity of how I could grow personally, but also how that could lead me to to different roles or different opportunities in the organization that I wouldn't have uh, actually perceived or thought of at, at such an early age. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm curious as well, Brian, because you talk about at around 29, 30 years old, you moved to Toronto and, uh, you know, that was several years ago or many years ago. And Toronto, the center of the universe, that's kind of there. You're Western Canada. You're an Alberta boy. That's a big move for anybody at that age coming from one end of the country going kind of central Canada or the other end of the world, really. Yes. (laughs) From that perspective, uh, what, what gave you the confidence to do that? And I know Kathy were saying was there and, and gave you lots of room and encouragement. And so was this for you guys just a really great adventure or was it more thoughtful than that? Uh, it was actually a combination of both, uh, mm. quite honestly. And so what was happening with the organization at that time with Labatt was um, going through a significant restructuring given sort of the uh, vacillations of the free trade agreement that were being put in place at mm. that time between the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. And so the opportunity came for me to leave Edmonton and go to Toronto. And I remember saying to Kathy at that time, like, I really don't want to go to Toronto. You know, of course, as a Westerner, Toronto is what Toronto was perceived to be. So um, yeah, I remember we were actually at a company function and we were having a dance and our regional president at that time had the opportunity to get Kathy by herself. And he said, you got to convince him to go to Toronto. He's got to go to Toronto. You know, <laughs> if he's going to want to move on, he's got to make that leap. And I remember having a conversation with Kathy uh, over the next few days, which is, you know, why is it you don't want to go? What What are some of the reasons you're not thinking about taking this opportunity, et cetera. And 
And she was very good in the sense that, look, take the opportunity. You, you, you don't know yet until you try it out. And if worse comes to worse, we don't like it after a couple of years, we'll move back. So at least she she sort of gave me the parachute. Right. And I was able to carry that parachute with me to Toronto. And as it was, we ended up moving to Toronto and had a great experience with Labatt there and ended up living in, in Toronto or just outside of Toronto for, for six years. So I had a wonderful six years in, uh, in that part of the world and got to meet a lot of new friends and uh, continue to sort of have those friends to this day before we had the opportunity at that time to take another move within Canada in, in 1997 to, uh, to Vancouver and actually come back West and live in a, another beautiful city like Vancouver and have the opportunity to live where um, my brother had uh, also moved to for a period of time so it was a great opportunity to come back west but also had the opportunity to do some great work and learn a lot from some really key people in the uh, marketing organization at that time at Labatt and be able to move into uh, a new role in uh, in Vancouver. Tell me something Brian when you're kind of on that journey and you know you're going through the corporate world and you know there's lots to be said you know, lots of stories about the corporations. And I mean, Labatt, I think, has generally a pretty great reputation, you know, at least for my limited understanding when I was paying attention a long time ago, they were actually had a great reputation for their for their staff and, and their HR. But for you, when you're in that corporate world, are you feeling that you're being treated well? Are you saying, I love what I'm doing? I love the environment. What was it that kept you there and why weren't you looking outside why were you at this point in your life you've been toronto you've met, moved to the center of the universe you're there you've met all these people was there a pull were you looking were you searching outside of that as well uh, to always in, to better yourself or were you in fact just saying no this is cool i'm going to ride this one out as long as i can it was actually a little more of the latter. No doubt I was going to ride this out as long as I can. But the reason why is the company had, um, I guess, entrusted me with a number of roles and I was able to deliver on those. So I felt like there was a really good reciprocal relationship between the company and myself. You're right from a, a people perspective at that point in time through the 80s and 90s, you know, a really well-run, good sort of organization treated people very well. Uh, and wanted to to develop people and take them as far as they could, in a sense, take themselves. So in, in that case, because I had been afforded a number of promotions and new opportunities, I continued to felt like I was being um, reborn and had opportunities to learn and be challenged with different roles. So there was always a learning experience for me, which actually afforded me the opportunity to say, why do I need to leave Labatt in this situation? They're giving me all these new opportunities, new experiences, both working in different departments with different people, with different stakeholders that uh, I always was felt challenged and, and frankly inspired to continue to do more and help the, the organization succeed. And sort of in the background in this period of time with Labatt, many years before Molson and, and Carling had merged and, you know, Molson had become what was now the number one brewing company in Canada. And so we had a, a mantra for almost 10, 11 years that Labatt would eventually surpass Molson to become the number one brewer again. And it was fun to be part on that journey and chip away at that lead a little bit year after year after year and, and contribute to that in some way with Labatt. So that kind of scorekeeping helped make it uh, help made it very fun as well too well you know aside from the promotions and the money and the travel and all the things that was going on I, I mean what i what i think i heard you say was just in that competitive world i mean you're marketing you've got 
probably a pretty healthy budget, uh, some pressure to perform and deliver. And I guess every time one of your marketing kind of initiatives worked or you got the you know results you're looking for, that's kind of like winning that race, right? Absolutely. That was the analogy for me is sort of the competition in business was very analogous to the competition of, of sport for me, whether it was, you know, when I was in track and field or volleyball or football or soccer, whatever the case may be, I was able to sort of transfer that competitiveness and the desire to, to improve, help the team become better, work as a team together to succeed and really apply those same principles into my, into my career and working with some really fantastic teams and fantastic fantastic leaders over over those years. So when you look in, if you look back and reflect, Brian, and you self-assess, how were you as a leader, do you think? Where, you know, if you're as competitive as you are, you know, because mm. you think about the, you know, the corporate kind of game can be pretty cutthroat. Those are all stories, by the way. Uh, it's not said not to say it's true, but when you start to get into that space that you're playing in, it gets pretty intense. You know, when you reflect how do you think you were as a leader? Were you really intense? Or were you one of those kick-ass kind of guys? I would say I was driven to achieve, but doing so with uh, the efforts of your team and, and the people that you work for. So I, I must say, as I moved into more leadership positions, I started to understand the role that you need to play as a leader and, and how you need to act and, and perform as well. And I think one of the early things that I ended up gravitating to I guess in the in the mid to late 90s in my early leadership roles was the paradox principle of in that uh, I as the leader actually work for the people that work for me because my job is to remove barriers and to provide them with the resources to allow them to get their jobs done. Mm -hmm. And so I should not be the person who is holding them up, whether that's through micromanagement from not being responsive enough, not being supportive of what we're trying to achieve and what my team is trying to achieve with um, people I would report to or senior management. So suddenly understanding that um, you actually work for your team and for your direct reports, not them actually working for you was probably one of the most foundational learning experiences around leadership that I then took forward with me uh, for the rest of the career I had with uh, Labatt, InBev, uh, and uh, onward to Kimberly Clark as well. You know, you kind of mentioned, it, you know, the leadership paradox in this case, and you know, study mentorship. When you look at how you shape, you know, how you've shaped up as a leader, was that really intentional? Did you, you know, this is a question that I like to ask: hmm. Is that did you study leadership? Because you know, there's an argument: he's a born leader, and somebody else says, "No, there's no such thing as a born leader." So let me ask you that again: Is that did you study leadership? Is that was one of the things that you wanted to be was a great leader, so you studied it? I would say I started to read a lot more about how to become a better leader, especially when placed in those formal leadership roles within the corporate world and organizations. So in all in all frankness, I would say, you know, I would have been able to exhibit some of those qualities and traits of leadership just as a kid growing up. Yeah, you know, I remember, uh, frankly, back in kindergarten, being sort of the student that our kindergarten teacher asked to be the conductor when we actually got to, to play <laughs> at the Jubilee Auditorium when we were five years old or six years old. And, you know, why was I chosen to be the conductor of, of the little group of kids that played their, their pipes and sticks and stuff like that? 
And I think it transcended it throughout my school days as well as it related to, you know, the sports that I played in and activities that I would have participated in where either through talent or through, you know, leadership expression, I uh, had the opportunity to encourage my teams or, or people I played with that, you know, we could achieve that, what we could do, you know, don't get down on yourself. We've got this opportunity uh, without necessarily being a rah-rah guy. I would always consider myself more the the sort of strong, silent leadership type as mm-hmm. opposed to the, the cheerleader leadership type. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think people gravitated to that as being sort of genuine and honest and, and sort of really, you know, from the heart basically. And so um, that's one of the things I would say I've actually gotten to appreciate and, and like a lot more as I move through my career was that ability to help develop people and help, you know, individuals who were part of my teams actually achieve what I thought they could achieve in their careers and move on to some, you know, great new roles or opportunities where they could express um, their capabilities to a much greater degree. So in the hierarchy of where you are now that you've come to Vancouver with Labatt's, what position are you holding at that point, Brian? So yes, the the move that took me to Vancouver actually afforded me the opportunity to achieve that director role. So that was my first director role that I would have uh, been placed into in uh, 1997. So I was uh, 35 years old and I had just actually 34 and just become a director. So that was a great opportunity and uh, was responsible for for field marketing and trade marketing at that time in, in British Columbia. And then very quickly, two years later, had the opportunity in 1999 to uh, actually either move back to Ontario or to the United States for an opportunity. And uh, I remember sort of accepting the role in Toronto first and getting a call from actually the president of the company at that time who wanted to have the opportunity to speak with me, who had recently come to Labatt from from a CPG company in the U.S., though he was a Canadian as well, but had moved back from, from the U.S. to Canada to take the role he did take with Labatt. I remember having a conversation with him on a Saturday afternoon and him expressing to me why he thought it would be a great opportunity for me from a career development perspective to take the opportunity to go to the U.S., learn a different market, you know, work as a small beer company under the giants of Miller Coors and and Anheuser-Busch, work in a two-tier distribution system as opposed to three, live in a different country. As he said, yeah, as, as much as, you know, many of us have obviously vacationed and and uh, spent time in the U.S. for different reasons. Actually, living there can be quite different than than Canada, and so that was a new opportunity for us. We had at that time three children, so we were, <laughs> you know, willing to take the move with three young children to move to uh, Connecticut at that time. And in same situation with Kathy again, she had always sort of had the opportunity and dreamed to to live in the U.S. at some stage. And now we had that chance and similar situation to the move we had going to Toronto. It's like, hey, you know, let's try it out. If it doesn't work (laughs) out, what's the worst thing that can happen? We move back, you know, we can figure things out from there. So uh, as it was, ended up moving to Connecticut in uh, 99 and actually ended up spending uh, about seven years there, six years. I had living in Connecticut, working for Labatt USA, uh, getting promoted to become the vice president of marketing for the for the company in the U.S. And then shortly thereafter, with the, the movements that were afoot in the global brewing industry, uh, Labatt had become part of Interbrew, and Interbrew was now in the process of merging with Ambev from Brazil to create InBev. And uh, that afforded me the opportunity to take a, a new global role with InBev, leading three global brands, uh, Bex, Lowenbrow, and Staropremen. 
uh, while continuing to be based in Connecticut, but sort of officially reporting in through the, the global marketing organization in Belgium. And that was a, a very fast year because suddenly at the end of 2005, I was asked to uh, to move to Europe and actually lead global innovation for, for the company in, the, in Belgium. So again, take the family, we uh, pack everything up and, <laughs> and go to Belgium for a, another new world and new business experience for us. So that was um, a really, you know, key decision, I would say, uh, in at that point in our lives, no different than sort of the move to Toronto was a, a really important move, one of those watershed moments, the move to Connecticut and to the U.S. was one, and then having the opportunity to go live and work with, with in Europe was another one of those that we just couldn't pass up and really thought this is a great way for us to get, um, frankly, a great life experience, great life experience for the children. And for me, you know, a phenomenal uh, opportunity to to really help set uh, a key growth agenda for the organization for uh, for a period of time. So it was a really, really great opportunity to be able to pursue. As you're going through your career right now, are you feeling pressure from above, just pressure you're putting on yourself? Are you now kind of in sync with their goals and feeling good about it? You know what I'm saying is, or are you really, are, are you feeling pressure from in that corporate world or is it just pressure you're putting on yourself? So I would say up until probably 2006, most of that pressure was pressure I put uh, probably on myself and some was placed on us by the organization area bosses to perform and deliver. So I, I felt for those first sort of 20 years or so, understood what we were trying to achieve, had really good people uh, working with us, around us, great agency partners. And we were, you know, we we're running some really good, successful, uh, successful brands and, and achieving new things in the marketplace. Things I would say changed quite a bit in my time in, in Belgium, where there was a lot more organizational pressure to deliver. And, and a lot of that had to do with the formation of the new company, meeting certain expectations with the markets and with um, stakeholders and shareholders. And so there was a lot more, uh, I would say, external pressure being put mm -hmm. on the organization, which then sort of trickled down inside the organization to uh, to continue to improve, deliver, et cetera. And so that uh, that became a little bit different when it comes from outside and sort of on you and, and managing that when it, as it comes from multiple directions definitely takes on a lot more personal challenges, but it also, you know, challenges your your leadership skills and abilities and, and how do you continue to lead a team through that process as well, too. Mm -hmm. So those are big challenges. Now, is, is this at this point? But you've been enjoying a great lifestyle all along, I, I'm assuming. I mean, you're doing it, you're, you're working hard, but uh, how is your lifestyle? Are you really buried into 60-hour weeks or 80-hour weeks? Or give me a little bit of like, how is that looking for you, Brian? Yeah, I would say through, you know, most of the 90s and into my time in, uh, in the U.S., Probably realistically, I would say, you know, there were like 50, 55 hour weeks. Some days were long. A lot of the, the length of time in the weeks was probably driven more by travel mm -hmm. than anything else. But when I was home, I really tried to make sure I was done at the office by, you know, 5.30, 6 o'clock at the latest. One of the things that we had always sort of committed to ourselves with, um, with the family, Kathy and I had always said, we always want to make sure we have dinner together. 
so, you know, we tried to have dinner no later than seven o'clock at times. And I made sure that I, I was home. And if I had to catch the train while I was in Toronto, because at that point in time, I only had one train a day to catch. So if I missed the train, it was a really expensive <laughs> cab ride for the company to send me home late if they wanted to keep me for a late meeting. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, wanting to make sure that I'd rather go into the office early in the morning to make sure that we sort of had that family time and dinner time at home in the evening. And if I needed to do another hour worth of work in the evening after the kids in bed were in bed, I would do it then. But I definitely wanted to make sure that I tried to keep as much of a, a proper life balance uh, in place. And frankly, I didn't want to miss my kids growing up either. Mm-hmm. So they were, you know, they, they still are very important to me and uh, wanted to make sure I was there for them and, and help them with their extra curricular activities or schoolwork or or whatever else I needed to uh, to help them with and and Kathy. So after Belgium, you're now I mean you have to be drinking some great beer along the way too, Brian. I mean there's gotta be <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so, uh, around the world, in fact, yes. That's a job requirement. I mean, gosh right. got some great beers happening. So you're in Belgium. Uh when did you kind of when did things when did you decide Labatz is no more? Uh, when did you say I'm done? Yeah, so I would say, uh, again, the organization went through a restructuring in 2007, mm-hmm. late 2007. And so um, I had the opportunity at that time to to take another role within InBev or, or frankly, move back to the U.S. And at that point in time, uh, what they were pro- proposing to me uh, within Europe was not something that I was very interested in. And so I opted to uh, to come back to the U.S. and sort of look for new opportunities and and see where else I might be able to apply my my marketing and innovation skills and capabilities with uh, with other organizations. So I actually had the opportunity to then move back in the summer of 2008 and actually spent a year uh, consulting in the in the beverage industry. Uh, and that was a fun year. I enjoyed doing that. We were able to to get back to our uh, our town in Connecticut, but I was actually working in downtown Manhattan at the time, so taking the uh, the train into Manhattan once a day and getting off in Grand Central Station and walking about six blocks away to an office building uh, was another new sort of work experience to actually work that New York commuter life, which... Uh, how some people have done it for 20, 30 years, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> it was good for the year that I did it. I enjoyed it. It was a good experience and really enjoyed working on some of the projects and with some of the companies that I worked in, both in, um, I guess, at that point in time, I had some projects in the U.S., had a project based in Mexico and helped out on a project over in the Czech Republic at that time as well, too. So what kind of, when you look at your marketing, I mean, that's on a, a global scale, you've got big budgets. What are you kind of driving? Like, what what got you there? What what actually opened up that opportunity to scale, to to think big, to to look at? Is it just about budget? What is it like? How did that? How does that work for you? So for me, um, you know, money was just an enabler to help achieve those goals. But I think prior to to getting the budget and the money is really understanding what it is you're trying to achieve with a brand, for example. So if we want to really establish this brand as for a certain target of people and, you know, identifying those individuals across multiple markets and then understanding how can you scale that opportunity by having a relevant brand position that um, emanates or resonates or I should say, in you know, Russia, in Hungary, in Korea. So, you know, finding that sort of um, opportunity that makes sense uh, across a multiple number of markets actually 
sort of affords you the opportunity to collect all those opportunities and actually create scale mm-hmm. in that manner, as opposed to just trying to find something big. So I think for me, I've always, um, I've always talked about it in the context of forensic marketing in that, you know, how do you find all these little clues and synthesize these, these elements and formulate sort of a, a cohesive strategy that you can synthesize and then take back out to multiple markets and find um, a very creative and strategic way to communicate that, that consistent message, but in culturally sensitive and uh, unique ways to make it relevant across multiple markets. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's such an interesting concept, you know, what you just said, because you're having to deliver that message culturally differently, but it's the, it's the same message. Uh, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, you know, a, a great example would be, you know, masculinity. So there's a number of brands, say in the tobacco or alcohol or beer businesses that have sort of rooted themselves in masculinity. You know, Marlboro is a great example, I would say, in the tobacco category. We would have had a number of examples around masculinity. And, and masculinity is like a very viable position for, you know, almost every country in the world. How masculinity is expressed on a culture or country by country basis is different, but you can still ultimately become a global brand founded and rooted in what masculinity means in a particular cultural context. I love that. You know, what I've learned, you know, what I'm starting to sense, especially now I've been doing so much research given uh, pandemics and, you know, I'm looking at what's going on in the world economically and I really am starting to see or feel, this is me feeling just how small Canada really is. I mean, we're a Mm -hmm. giant landmass, but, you know, 37 million people. I mean, gosh, we're just tiny when you look at on a global perspective. And so in the marketing world, given what you were doing, having traveled the world, how did you see Canada after living here, being a Canadian, then going off into the world, especially in a marketing kind of way that you did it how did canada show up in that in that marketing message and and what did it really mean on the big scale yeah no that's a great question so i I would say you know taking that move to the u.s especially was that was like a big leap you know and you sort of you sort of go from not only a smaller market to a much larger market and you know arguably the most dominant consumer goods market in the world with all kinds of companies and people who have um, been able to get very good at, at executing fantastic marketing strategy, et cetera. Uh, so there was that aspect of suddenly a much bigger stage. And at the same time, unfortunately, the Canadian marketplace was also going through a little bit of what I would describe as marketing and attrition, because so many consumer goods companies that were U.S.-centric, U.S.-based, sort of looked at Canada really as just an extension of the U.S. market and really didn't think about some of the, you know, unique idiosyncrasies about the Canadian market, whether it be certain flavors that we have in certain products, communication in Quebec that has to be different than other aspects of the Canadian landscape. And so taking that to just to a much larger scale was a a little bit frightening, frankly, you know, because it's like, wow, I really got to pick up my game because I'm suddenly, you know, graduating from from Canada to the US and I got to really sort of elevate my game and really understand what it means to be a top notch marketeer and be able to to deliver against that. Uh, And then frankly, really finding, you know, good people and and good partners to um, 
to help drive that business with you know that you can't do it by yourself. Uh, you know, don't ever think you're the smartest guy in the room all the time. Your job is actually to be smart enough to understand, to get enough smart people in the room so you can do it collectively. Uh, I think that was a, a really big learning point for me as well, too, is really understand where you can get good talent and good resources to actually get done what you need to get done to achieve the results that we ultimately ended up achieving. When you look, Brian, at, the messages that you were putting out years ago and you've watched the evolution of marketing and marketing messages. When you look out into the world today as a consultant, what are you seeing? Like, can you identify some bigger changes? Like I'm thinking about all of the different stuff that's going on in the world. And just what popped into my head is like black lives matter. I mean, that to me is, it's a, it's a, it is what it is, but I'm saying there's, there's, there's marketing behind that. Are you seeing how companies are embracing that? Like, what is the, what are you seeing shifting in the marketing mm -hmm. world? And because we're talking to a different audience now in a different way, that's my sense of it, but you're the expert. Yeah, no. I, so I would say one big evolution is marketing was very much a, a one-way communication street, so to speak. You know, we, as the uh, manufacturer, advertiser, we, we would speak to people through different media, whether that was television, radio, outdoor, et cetera. And so marketing has definitely evolved over the last 15 years to be much more of a two-way communication where your customers and consumers actually feel like they own the brand as much as you do as the brand custodian, you know, <laughs> as the brand marketer as well. And so understanding that relationship with your customer and consumer is super important. And that has only been I would say accelerated and ingrained even more deeply through uh, the advent and explosion of social media and how social media really just takes on a whole different role within um, your marketing strategy and, and sort of scope of activities. So those are really, really big opportunities. I would also say um, on the downside of marketing, I, I feel like there has been a little bit of a trend to greater uh, trade marketing, I will describe it as trade marketing from brand marketing. And uh, given the pressure that a lot of organizations are putting on their sales organizations, marketing teams to deliver short-term results, what kind of activities can I utilize within my, my marketing quiver to, you know, drive results now in this quarter, this year, without necessarily thinking about the ramifications that funding some of those activities from good, solid brand equity marketing might erode the brand over time. And I think we've seen a number of brands now don't stand for what they used to stand for because they um, diluted their messaging, uh, have changed their position numerous times, or are literally just attaching themselves to to sort of every new activity, every new event, as opposed to you know standing firm on what they really believe and what they represent with a consumer base that that actually respects and desires that. So when I look, you know, myself as a small business owner, as you know, I mean, we look, I sometimes look at the, the these big brands and I, you know, I, I kind of go, ah, if I had that kind of budget and that kind of horsepower and, and, and that all aside, you know, when you talk about uh, maybe messages or brand getting watered down or off track, or I don't know what you would call it. You know, the one mm -hmm. thing that I see the advantage I have as a small business owner is the ability to be really clear on what our ethos is as an organization, as a team, and to stay to that. As a matter of fact, 
were small enough that, you know, my executive team, you know, within our whole team, if we're off track of that ethos, we know it, we feel it, we, you know, we can actually see it. I, I don't know how a big brand manages that. Like, how do how does that even fold into the overall corporate world in in that magnitude? Is there? Do you have an answer to that, Brian? I don't know. What I would say is, uh, you know, the, as you become responsible for big brands and senior marketing roles, stakeholder management and sort of organizational alignment become more and more important to ensure that how we portray the brand, how we market the brand, how we communicate everything around that brand needs to be in sync. And you need to get the whole organization understanding sort of what that ethos is, but be consistent in its application and its communication. And you really need senior leadership to align to that. And uh, if you can't get senior leadership to align to that, you, you will get drifts, brand drift. And suddenly that brand isn't what it you know used to stand for. The organization isn't consistent in how they communicate what that brand represents and who you're targeting. And so, unfortunately, I think we've seen that happen in a number of organizations, especially those organizations that have come under, you know, recent financial performance pressure. And so they are looking to drive short-term results. And, and in many cases, damage to the brand occurs as a sort of a consequence of some of those activities to drive, you know, short-term sales, short-term activities forward in the in the pursuit of trying to hold on to the existing business, but not necessarily creating a stronger platform for that business going, going forward. And I think there's a lot of, um, you know, smaller companies like yourselves, uh, that have done a really good job of finding the two or three things that uh, really represent what they stand for and how they can be conveyed. And I think of an interesting, you know, cleaning product like Method, which came out with some very, very simple uh, communication around their ingredients, great design, uh, environmentally friendly, and they sort of just stick to that and conveyed that in everything they did. And, and every time the, a new product was brought forward, they made sure they checked off those two or three really important boxes every time. And in that case, when you, when you can really nail your positioning and really be consistent in its communication, you actually don't need to spend tons and tons of money to be able to, to win in the marketplace because you're doing so on a very consistent basis and not confusing the consumer. You know, just given what you do, Brian, I'm curious, is that are you, as you're just doing your life and uh, shopping or going out doing business and you, are you constantly in your brain, are you doing some kind of a, an assessment of every business that you walk into? Like, I, I know in the past <laughs> that I was there when I was really into yeah. understanding marketing, it was just like everywhere I know oh, they can do this better or man, are they ever hitting it out of the park here or shit, I got to try that. You know, like, so do you find yourself that way? Uh, yeah, you know, it's almost like you can't completely shut that off, even as a consumer. He's, he's definitely going through that through that assessment. And so I, I would say, yeah, you definitely are paying attention, whether it's an in-store display activity or it's some kind of social media communication or it's, you know, a traditional television ad that you may see uh, or product placement. Yeah, you're sort of watching what people are doing and, and who's sort of doing it right and who you think is is starting to drift and not necessarily do it well. I know one of the things I've gotten more involved in over the last five, six years that has almost been part of a rejuvenation for, for me as well, too, is taking uh, my marketing experiences and, and skills and applying them to, to startup companies. Mm. Now. So I've been involved with a handful of startups now, uh, enjoy getting them off the ground, helping them find their, their sort of 
point that they want to uh, to communicate and develop that and, and bring that point of differentiation forward in, in the marketplace and and start companies from scratch and and help them find their way in the world and and help them achieve what uh, what they're trying to achieve. So I have found that uh, very beneficial personally, uh, and in my days at Kimberly Clark. Uh, I was actually able to take some of those experiences and help bring that into the corporate organization and, and get the corporate organization to think more like entrepreneurs, move more quickly like entrepreneurs. Don't worry about perfecting everything. Sometimes you want to try things first. If it doesn't work, the cost of failure was actually very, very small, but you learned a lot, a lot of valuable things. So I think uh, I've really enjoyed blending the the world of entrepreneurship and, and startups with my corporate background have sort of led me to to have a different perspective when I consult and advise with uh, companies today on marketing and innovation. You know, it's interesting that to have your skill set to be able to come into the you know small business world and kind of see it from a different perspective. And I want to go back to something you were talking about, which is having the you know the senior management or the ceo mm-hmm. and everybody you know, aligned with the brand right now, now we talk right. about you know and i couldn't help but think in that moment about let's say amazon and jeff bezos or i don't know uh, tesla and elon musk let's just throw a couple out there because they're big in the news these days now do you look at uh, something like an amazon or a tesla and just see just how impactful that ceo is do you think that uh, Jeff Bezos and and Elon Musk are just so focused on that brand and who they are that the rest of the management team or the rest of the organization would have trouble getting outside of that box. Or what what's your experience or thoughts on that, Brian? So I would say uh, my experience based on the corporations that I've worked in is yeah, it's very important for that that senior leader to in a sense create and convey the vision for the organization, what it is we're trying to achieve and to some degree, even how we're going to achieve that. I think what's frankly really important is the group of individuals that are two levels below the CEO. I always call it the two level kind of concept. If you don't have the people that actually need to do the work and the implementation and actually hold that stuff together two levels down, that's where you can lose an organization. And frankly, I've even seen that's where organizational sabotage occurs is actually at that level. And so you may have a new leader come into an established organization want to pivot the organization and take it in a, in a new, not necessarily completely new direction, but a, you know, a new version of that direction. Mm-hmm. And uh, in many times you'll get corporate and organizational resistance at a certain level that will just frankly wait it out until uh, the CEO gets changed out because he didn't achieve what uh, he was trying to achieve. But that's because sort of down a couple layers in the organization, there was such resistance to the new strategy or the new plan that they just didn't execute it. So you really need to ensure, I would say a couple levels down that the people, A, first of all, believe it, two are engaged, three are going to execute it, and four are going to support it going forward. So mm-hmm. uh, hopefully, um, you know, you, you got to make sure you got those right people in the right leadership roles, not just at the, at the top. Beautiful. So we talk about leadership and, you know, I consider, you know, the years that you've been doing what you're doing, you're now into consulting. What does the future for Brian look like? You've got all this experience. I mean, you're far from an old guy. So you're in this world where, what do I do next? Now you put on this consulting hat, which means then that you're now kind of having to take on 
you know, selling yourself or attracting clients, or I don't know, maybe you don't, maybe they're just coming to you. But what, what is your, what does your world look like now that you've come out of this corporate background, you've done all these things, what is your new world looking like as you go forward at this point in your life, Brian? Well, I guess the simplest way to, to put it is you truly do work for yourself right now. <laughs> and so having the, uh, I guess, the opportunity and the flexibility to really choose what you want to work on and given however it might inspire you, challenge you, whatever the case may be, that I think is sort of a, a new luxury to be able to go, oh, I'd really like to work with this organization or this company or for this cause or purpose because I've got some some passion for it. So I think having the opportunity to have that kind of flexibility and and decision-making, you know, capability around what do I really want to work on? And, and I can say no to the other stuff because I might not have to work on it now. Right? <laughs> so I think that's one. And I think sort of also really having the... Uh, ability to have much more sort of work-life balance control. So if I only want to work half day today, I can work a half day and, you know, we're going to go look after the grandkids. Or if we want to take a, an extra four-day uh, vacation kind of weekend, we can go do that. So I think having sort of that kind of flexibility and ability to to not be tied to a eight to five, nine to five, Monday through Friday kind of uh, opportunity, I think helps too. So I, I would say being really jazzed up and excited about working on what you want to work on with who you really want to work with. And then having that uh, that work-life balance flexibility are probably the two greatest uh, greatest things and greatest rewards I've got right now. Though I think sometimes Kathy would probably like me to get out of the house more often. But uh, <laughs> well, no, where, where are you guys? Where are it's you guys? It's hard to do that in COVID. You know, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, where are you guys in the COVID world? Like, what's going on there? Like, are you guys locked down, shut down? What can you do? What can't you do these days? We are almost fully wide open okay. now. So uh, the governor of Georgia has removed the mandatory mask mandate. That still may be applied um, by business in certain environments, uh, but we have now both had our uh, our two COVID shots. So we had that a week ago Monday. So we have uh, moved on and sort of had our two shots. And uh, you know we're looking at uh, heading out to a restaurant for the first time next <laughs> week, which we haven't had a, the opportunity to do in a long time. Yeah. Fortunately, one of the small businesses, one of the startups that I'm involved with, is uh, a brewery called Reformation Brewery just next to us in the, in the next town over. And we've actually been able to sort of utilize that facility and sit outside at, at picnic tables or, or folding chairs for really throughout the entire COVID period. And that has been a, a really valid sort of respite for us to be able to once a week, you know, we can get out of the house, go somewhere. The family can meet us. We can all sort of cluster around one table, do our sort of social distancing, but be together as a, as a family and enjoy a beer and a couple hours in the sunshine. And so having had that ability, I think has really helped us with our, our sanity, but yeah, we're, uh, I would say we're almost at the end of the tunnel right now and, and things are going to rapidly open up and we're starting to see that in, in that business, but in, in the other businesses around here as well now, too. It's so interesting, the diversity of uh, views of the world from state to state and, you know, uh, even Canada, province to province, probably not as dramatic as what we see in some of the different states. California, you know, right now, as an example, you know, the extreme side of California versus, I don't know, Florida. Right. So it's it's right, you right. know just so odd. Everybody has a different view, you know, of the world and 
what COVID means. Uh, I don't want to talk about it. I'm tired of talking about COVID, but I, I want to talk about you some more because when you look at what you're doing as a consultant, I, I, and I'm and I'm very curious about this. You've come to that point in your life. Are you? When you look at taking jobs, is it because you're now marketing yourself? Are you out there digging, grinding for work? Uh, how do you set yourself up to get the jobs? Are you just phoning guys that you've known for years? How does how's that working for you, Brent? So I would say there's a couple a couple things. You know, phoning uh, individuals that you were would have worked with that have moved into potentially new roles where you know they are probably having to go through a learning plan and potentially could use some help in in redefining their strategy or the work that they're now taking on. So I'd say there's a little bit of that. I would say there's aspects of social media. There's aspects of generating webinars and sort of free context and free material for people around certain subjects that may entice people to to give you a call or to reach out to you to see how you might be able to help them. So I would say it's quite varied. A lot of it is still face-to-face marketing, as you can imagine, yeah. and, and reaching out to people or just having, you know, interesting social conversations with people when and where you can have them about uh, what you do and, and what kind of value you think you can help organizations with. So when you put on your marketing hat and we look at what's going on with COVID and the pandemic, are you seeing a message that has to be I don't know, relayed or from business point of view, is there, are you seeing a, an opportunity to kind of craft a message around your mm. brand, given what's going on? Yeah. So I think really COVID has opened up the door for, you know, what many call the gig workforce, of course, sure. and, you know, individuals who are not necessarily full-time employees. And I think more traditional organizations are becoming more open to that kind of work environment, knowing that, hey, we haven't had employees work on site for a year now anyway. So even for those individuals we bring back on site because they're considered more important to be in a work environment, working in teams, whatever the case may be, the fact that there are people like myself that can bring a particular skill set and capabilities uh, and work on a project and deliver work without necessarily having to be an employee, you know, be... um, on site with that that work, I think there's just more and more opportunities for individuals like myself um, to bring that kind of value to to organizations, and to some degree lighten up what would considered be some some overhead and and actually just pay for the needs that we have at that point in time and not necessarily have to carry a a larger sort of financial burden that a full time employee would potentially have. So as we start to wind down, I want to I want to tap into your marketing brain a little bit, and 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 because of small, just with the small business, you know, mm-hmm. lots of small business owners listening to this show, lots of really keen followers. What are you giving? What would you give for guidance for small owners when it comes to marketing or brand? Any any kind of two three key things that you would want to shine a light on, or you could. Yeah, and, and I would say. Definitely based on some of the experience I've had in working with the startups, uh, especially those that are potentially more retail-orientated or service-orientated. The importance for me of some of the community activities and community involvement that we have gotten ourselves um, involved in is a a, a great way to sort of put your your company forward and get people to to know who you are and generate awareness and and some interest and potentially some um, 
some interface with people around what your your services or, or products are. But it also, I think, says that you've got a, a commitment and roots in the community that allow you to create a, a stronger bond with the people that you're trying to serve, et cetera. So I have seen a almost a hyper improvement and intensity around community engagement, community involvement, and and find what that community is for for you and your your small business or your company. Is it is it your town? Is it a particular group of people? And how do you really establish yourself and, and make yourself known in that community? And don't try to stretch or exceed beyond that too quickly because you'll just dilute your efforts and really never establish yourself with, with a center core. I've, in, our, in my beer days uh, with Labatt, and I'll go back to uh, your Labatt, amazing USA. beer days, your amazing beers yeah. that you drank across the world or around oh, the that's world. That's right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> but uh, it's a it's a great example, I would say, that is just as appropriate to small business in that much of our uh, Labatt Blue business at that time in the U.S. was highly concentrated in upstate New York and the state of Michigan. So 70% of our business was in two states. And obviously, we had ambitions to grow throughout the U.S. But we also realized quite quickly that uh, I would describe it, we couldn't use the parachute strategy just because we wanted to start selling more in Florida or North Carolina or Texas. What was our reason to suddenly sell more in those markets when people had no experience, no awareness, no relevance of us? So we frankly wasted a lot of money trying to execute the parachute strategy or paratrooper strategy. Uh, And so we were much more successful with um, uh, the pebble strategies. You know, how do you drop a pebble in a pond and create those concentric circles and grow from that center point? And so our growth strategy was, all right, we got to go beyond Michigan and, and New York, so let's go to to Vermont. Let's go to Pennsylvania. Let's mm. go to Northeast Ohio. And so we literally just went to the next level of geography to be able to drive that business. And, you know, over a four-year period, we were able to actually get Labatt Blue to become the number three import in the U.S. after only Heineken and uh, and Corona. And a lot of that was just driven off of uh, leveraging the strength in adjacent markets to the next market. And so I think there's a, a great analogy there for small businesses. Uh, to yes, say, there is. Hey, what's the next market I can move to? And that might be a, an adjacent customer base, an adjacent geography, an adjacent channel. But it's got some connection back to your core business that allows you to leverage that core strength and that core business to move to that next level. Get yourself established there before you move to the next level. Hmm. Good wisdom. I love that. So as we wind down, I'd like to do some rapid fire questions, Brian. So uh, sure. quite simple. And they're not generally that rapid, by the way. Sometimes they are. So <laughs> tell me, uh, I want your favorite book that you like uh, and has the greatest impact on you. And then the book that you would gift the most. Oh, boy. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give you multiple answers. So, okay, okay. You know, well, I asked you multiple reading, questions. I asked multiple questions. Yeah, so it's only pleasure fair. reading perspective. <laughs> One of my favorite books as a kid growing up, Pebble in the Sky by Isaac Asimov, and I loved science fiction growing up as a kid. Still like science fiction today. From a business book perspective, probably. Uh, one of my favorites, largely as I gravitated towards roles in innovation, is something called The Other Side of Innovation, which really talks about where innovation tends to fail more is actually on execution. And that many organizations don't plan sufficiently enough when they go to market with their new product or new initiative for long enough periods of time and really understand competitive response, 
investments over long periods of time. And so uh, more innovation fails because of poor execution than not having a good idea or mm-hmm. not having a good solution. So I think that is uh, one thing I continue to sort of preach within uh, within my consulting and business context as well. Love that. And then I think you asked, which one would I buy for someone? Yeah. Are you even a, a book gifter? Some people are, some people aren't. I, occasionally, I must say, um, probably over the last 10 years, I've much become <laughs> much more of a periodical reader than a oh. book reader. So <laughs> I probably read 100, 200 periodicals a week on on various things, uh, primarily around investments and investment strategy and currency printing and real estate investing and, you know, great dividend stocks, et cetera. So I tend to gift my family and and others much more around uh, great articles or periodicals of things that are happening uh, in current time. Okay. Speaking of periodicals, I don't normally ask this question, uh, but silver, gold or Bitcoin? Ooh, I think for the long term, uh, silver is going to have the greatest upside. Gold will always be gold. And I think cryptos always have the risk of being regulated or legislated. Out. <laughs> yeah. So that's sort of my my word on that one. <laughs> They're a big topic these days. That's for darn sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see. That's right. Oh, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't say real estate. I mean, for me, that's a given. Um, okay. Yes, of course. I, I totally agree with you because they don't make any more of it. Like everyone make says, anymore, right? Yes. iPhone or uh, iPhone or Android. I'm a iPhone guy only because my kids sucked me into it. And, you know, once you're in sort of the network, it's pretty hard to extract yourself <sighs> out of the network. So it's what they do, uh, you know, they, Apple, I think, did a great job of creating that system yeah. and linking all the all the toys to a single system and the cloud. And it's it's hard to break away from that system because it uh, it becomes quite painful not not having things that connect to that system once you're in it. Yeah, it is. It's, and, and and on top of it, they must they do a great job of in their brand and marketing because oh. once you drink the apple Kool-Aid, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, you're born again yeah. almost. That's crazy. It's, yeah, I, I agreed. And I think, you know, they've done a great job of creating, you know, really rabid brand advocates yeah. for that <laughs> brand, but they've done so because they've delivered on the product totally. and the experience yeah. so, yeah, so effectively. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They did a great job. So do you have a favorite tune? I have too many is the mm. problem. Yeah. You know, I, I still go back to my hard rock days and, uh, you know, it's almost like which band? What would be the one song from what band would you really want? Okay, well, do you, okay, well, do you, do you have a favorite band that pops into your mind? Uh, probably still one would be, probably be Def Leppard would be in my top five along with uh, ACDC, Van Halen, Led Zeppelin. Sure, and, I mean, those are all classics. That's you know, great. The, all those old classics, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. What about uh, favorite movie? Oh, you know, probably Star Wars. I, that movie had such an impression on me when it came out in 1977 at, at 15 years old. And I remember going to that movie with my two brothers and and my mother, I think, for a Saturday matinee in Calgary. And to me, that was like one of those movies that just opened up my eyes to yeah. like... And, and as I said, I was reading a lot of science fiction at that time and, and comic books. I was an avid Marvel comic book reader. And of course, I've loved the movies that have come out since. But Star Wars was just such a wow from a technology perspective, from a visual and audio experience, and and a great story. That uh, that still is one of my all time all time faves. I can watch that over and over again. You, but I can't help but go every. I've watched it a number of times, but when I've gone back to it in the in recent years, it's so like, gosh, it's like I don't know watching 
zap man back in you know, I know. in the 70s <laughs> right in the 60s like, and that was such leading edge you <laughs> know, know so like leading edge 40 years ago now <laughs> all these guys right. are running around in plastic it just cracks me up uh favorite swear word oh it's got to be the f word because that's a Canadian thing. Yeah. <laughs> you think so? I think it's just a Canadian thing. Well, you live in the U.S. Are you hey, suggesting that nobody's... <laughs> it's a pronoun, a verb, an adverb, a noun, an adjective, and prepositional yeah, and one. Yeah. It's a great, you know, very useful. Yeah, it pretty much says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and Brian, what are you grateful for? I am really grateful for uh, my family, frankly, you know, mm. whether it's been, you know, parents, extended family, my wife, my kids, my grandkids now, and, you know, everyone sort of extended and related to them. And yeah, I just really enjoy my family now and, and always have been and, and the time we are able to spend with them. Beautiful. And I am grateful to have had the opportunity to connect with you. Like you, I'm always grateful for my family and uh, I'm actually grateful for living in Canada uh, particularly in the Fraser Valley uh, in beautiful British Columbia. So, uh, Brian, I want to say thank you so much. I am very, very grateful for uh, finally getting together and being able to connect and uh, enjoy this conversation. So thanks, Brian. Yeah, you're very welcome. And I'm grateful for the opportunity. It was great to be able to share some stories with you today, Patrick, and uh, really enjoyed the opportunity with you. Great journey, man. Okay, we'll catch up again soon. Okay, look forward to it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.